one month into the year already? Not a chance, but it's true. It's the first Monday of the month and it's midnight. So you know what that means. It's time for Midnight Theology, a podcast of four pastor friends where we talk all things Christianity, leadership, culture, and life as they relate to the Wesleyan Methodist movement. I'm your host, Larry Frank, and as always, I'm joined by Gabe Wank. Hey there. Sarah Wank. Hey, y'all. And Adam Penn. Howdy. All four together reunited for the first time this year. Here we go. First, a moment for updates. How's everyone doing? What's cooking in your lives? What are you looking forward to most in this season? Wanks, it's been a while um, since uh, you weren't with us last month, and uh, there's just been a little change in you guys' lives since then. <laughs> what are so you talking about? Why don't you tell us about that? There's been no change. <laughs> like, only... I'm... <laughs> like I may or may not be recording this from inside a closet in a, in a new house. Yeah, <laughs> like we've only just begun. I don't know what song that was. It's probably from the 70s, somebody with long hair. Um, we literally have packed up our whole lives, our whole house, uh, packed it, unpacked most of our living spaces in a new space 350 miles south of from whence we came. And uh, we are residing in Marion, Illinois, in southern Illinois, right at the top of the Shawnee National Forest. Um Found out this last weekend there was seven, eight inches of snow in our previous address, and I was a little jealous. I missed the snow, but it'll be okay because I'm going to enjoy some nice southern, southern weather coming real soon. Are you working on your accent already? Trying. It'll, co- <laughs> it'll come. It'll come back. I should say. You know, it hit me back in 2000 when I went down into Wilmore, and uh, I'm sure it'll hit me back quick. So you December, three hundred fifty <laughs> miles. Why? So we took uh, new positions in leading a new congregation. Uh, except it's not, it's it's not a new to us congregation in many ways. Uh, so we're now uh, pastors at Aldersgate Methodist Church in Marion, uh, Illinois, a new global Methodist congregation. Um, but it is uh, what I call my home church. So my father entered full-time ministry when I was five years old um, in the Marion area. This is the church that we attended before dad entered ministry, the one that supported his candidacy. And I have uh, memories of vacation Bible school and um, children's um, like Christian musicals, (laughs) having solos in the kids' choir. Um, And even though dad served other churches in the area, I stayed connected with the youth group through my teenage years attended church camp together with them and accepted my call to ministry with them. So when I went away to college, um, I officially left the Marion uh, area and we have not lived at home since, but my, it has, we have considered it home. Um, my side of the family, it has been home for us. And my parents moved back here, um, gosh, like 10 years ago, just prior to their retirement. Uh, bought a home here and intended to retire in the area. So my mother and sister and nephew live five miles away, cousins and aunts and uncles. And uh, my brother is here very regularly. He lives about two hours away. So um, we have immediate family in um, where we live, which has not happened for me since I lived at home 25 years ago. And uh, we're kind of coming back full circle. Like last night we took Hudson to... Uh, play in the pep band that that's that was a new to him experience uh in joining this junior high at a junior high basketball game and like walked him into the gymnasium that was my junior high that i played pep band in and it was just this really bizarre out of body moment but as aldersgate starts a new chapter of ministry uh the lord in his grace and goodness uh, made it so that we could join them in this season of ministry and kind of return to family at the same time. So it's been an interesting full circle. I feel like I'm out of my own body a lot, like (laughs) driving around town and being able to see like my childhood and my life and my family on top of what Marion is and, and has become now and, and thinking about, you know, having hopefully a really long term ministry year. So um, it's been an exciting chapter and, um, but moving is like, just always chaotic so we're still like i can barely put the two thoughts together because we're still sort of living in the chaos of that but uh, everything has gone really smoothly and for that we're thankful about you adam 
Yeah, we're getting into a new year. Um, our boys are going to be playing basketball for the first time. Yeah, uh, so yeah. Got, got a little winter basketball that we're looking forward to. Their first practice got snowed out, um, but uh, we're kind of kind of looking forward to that starting up and um, just kind of uh, getting things cooking at the church. We've got a faith and technology course that we're doing on uh, Wednesday evenings um, and uh, hoping that that will bring some some fruit, helping families get some tools that they need to engage technology in a spiritually healthy way. And so uh, just kind of excited to see what this year will hold for us. Um uh, in a new season uh, for Morton Methodist Church. So, how about you, Larry? Well, officially over six months in at uh, at Grace Church, so um, the the new guy thing has worn off a little <laughs> bit. Um, so, well, in in a, in a really good way. Like, I'm not saying the honeymoon's over um, by any means, but just looking forward to to diving in 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 new ways now that like. Um, I've become acclimated to uh, to everything. So, um, and it's an exciting season for this church. Still a new season after um, after George retired uh, after 27 years in this church. So it's it's still a new process for uh, for everyone. Uh, I got to put my professor hat on for the first time at the end of uh, January uh, in uh, leading a Doctor of Ministry cohort at uh, United Seminary, where it's just like surreal and weird like sarah and i just finished up there um and now i'm back there but um like not a student now so just uh um something i never thought i'd be doing um so Hmm. it's uh it's an exciting an exciting thing so not just reverend dr larry frank you were professor larry frank (laughs) (laughs) yeah the girls have had a hard time wrapping their mind around it we always knew you would you would be a professor like, I don't think that's a surprise it, 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 to other people. I'm going to blame everybody else because I, it's not <laughs> something I ever saw for myself. It was through the incessant uh, everyone else calling me professor um, <laughs> that made me entertain it. Um, thank God I'm I, independent now because you all used to call me the bishop. Hey, uh, so thank, thank God we don't have bishops. No, We're, we ain't got no bishops. We still working on that. You don't, you don't know what 10 years from now is going to hold, brother. We ain't got no bishops in sanctification network. I know. <laughs> I rebuke that. <laughs> I rebuke that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. Uh, no, it, you know, if, if there was a system where the Episcopacy was reimagined and it was more than, uh, um, you know, uh, administrative and actually guarding the faith, sure. Um, I, but I, I, this know, sounds like another episode for another day. Yeah, it's going to get there. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's a future episode. So uh, here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to talk about several things, seven several things to be exact. Um, so I listened to a leadership podcast by Kerry Neewoff, Um and I have no idea if I'm saying his last name right, because I feel like everybody pronounces it differently every time they say his name. I think uh, he so, even pronounces it differently every time he says it. I think so. <laughs> oh, so, so we're just going to go... We're just going to go with Carrie from here on out. Carrie's a Canadian author, leadership expert, uh, the founding pastor of Connexus Church in Ontario. Uh, and he's done a lot of work in the areas of leadership, personal development, church growth. He's written a whole bunch of books uh, and hosts this popular leadership podcast called the Carrie Neewoff Leadership Podcast. And he's always interviewing different leaders and experts about leadership, personal development. Um, and his the first article he writes every year uh, and now he's going to start doing it as the first podcast of every year um, is uh, about disruptive church trends. Uh, so I was listening to his first podcast in January and he revealed based on his research and his observations from working with a lot of churches uh, in North America, uh, seven church trends that will disrupt 2024. And like I said, it's actually a report that he's done since at least 2016. And I clicked back through a bunch of those and he's been pretty spot on with everything. Like he's just a really astute guy and uh, does his homework and his research. So I read the article. I listened to him discuss this on his podcast with some uh, young uh, Baptist leaders from Texas. I sent you guys the article, sent it to the pastoral team at Grace Church and uh, our whole staff team discussed it. Um, so I thought we could talk through these together. Uh, and for our listeners, go read the article by Kerry. Uh, he's the guru. He's the expert. 
Uh, we're just local church boots on the ground leaders, and we're just doing what we've always done. Uh, we're having a little campfire chat about these as friends. That's all the expertise you're going to get from us <laughs> is that we, li- we like to talk and wrestle and argue about these things uh, with one another. And there's a lot here, so here's what I think we're going to do. Uh, we're going to do a quick walk through all seven trends, just name them. Uh, and then we're going to talk about five of them today. Two of them are fairly closely related uh, and probably warrant a lot of discussion. Uh, it's a, a growing issue um, in the church. So we'll mention them today, but we're going to do a whole episode on them uh, next month. Sound good? Yep. Uh, so good. here's the here's the seven. Uh, and then we'll, I'm just going to read them and then we'll, we'll dig more into them. Uh, first, the stable church has become an endangered species. Hmm. Second... Millennials are the new core of your church. Three, Gen Z will start to reshape the church. Four, discipleship has a growing digital component. Five, partisan extremism will continue to fuel short-term growth, but not long-term growth. Six, AI adoption will become normative in growing churches. And seven, a new kind of megachurch pastor will continue to emerge. So we're gonna separate out number four, Discipleship has a growing digital component. And number six, AI adoption will become normative in growing churches. And we're going to tackle those two together uh, next month, uh, digital discipleship and AI adoption. Um, but let's walk through the others and uh, see what we think. So uh, remember that these trends are disruptive. So the point is to be ready for them, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, I'm going to read um, the statement again. And then I'm going to read the short intro that Carrie had for each one. And then what I want to hear as we talk about it is if you're buying, selling, or qualifying. Qualifying means uh, I'm giving it a yes, but I have a qualification um, behind it or or a caveat. So the first one is the stable church has become an endangered species. He wrote, the return to in-person church has taken its toll on leaders and congregations over the last few years. The latest casualty, the stable congregation. According to a recent survey, the stable church is now an endangered species. There's an almost 90% chance that your church is either growing or declining. Only 12% of respondents reported that their church was stable, neither attracting new people nor shrinking. Another way to think about this is that churches that have momentum are gaining even more momentum, while churches that don't are losing people just as quickly. Buying, selling, or qualifying. I buy, I'll buy I, I, I spend all the money, I take all my money. You know, I, I definitely buy that from a numerical standpoint that most churches are either in a state of growth or a state of decline. Um, however, uh, my only qualification would be I, uh, I recognize that numerical growth is not always hand-in-hand uh, hand with spiritual vitality. And in some cases, numerical decline has positioned churches to have a a dedicated steady core of people that can be a springboard for uh future growth right i buy that so absolutely so So, you know let let me remind you that they're disruptive trends it doesn't mean that you have to agree with it it's just the presence of it yeah so it's good bad or indifferent so yeah numerical decline does not necessarily mean does not have to mean uh, that there's a, a, a spiritual quality decline. There, there could be a, a pruning mm-hmm. happening in a church that's going to lead lead uh, to growth. But for for decades, like you could go back and look at statistical reports in our in our former oh, yeah. um, conference, and and you could see churches that were stable year after year after year. Yeah, that that doesn't really exist anymore. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 numbers aren't everything, but they ain't nothing either. Sure. Yeah. Um, that, that, that they are a metric. They're not a perfect metric, but they are a metric. And the metrics say that you're either growing numerically or declining numerically. Only 12% yeah. of churches in, in North America said their church was stable. Wow. That's crazy. And that's crazy. And we, it, here's the deal we have done something over the last couple of decades. I'm going to get, I'm really going to get hate mail. Okay. Do pastors, it. pastors and church leaders <laughs> will be like, We've got to grow. We've got to grow deeper. We need we need more mature disciples. So that's how we all sort of define that we are called to make more and maturing disciples. And when some pastors or church leaders hear that your church should be growing, they get defensive and they go, "No, we need more mature disciples." I I think 
a lot of folks have been pretty defensive about church growth for deeper discipleship, but if you are growing deeper, more mature disciples, you should also be growing because disciples make disciples. It is part of the discipleship process. And what we have said is we have called deeper discipleship attending more Bible studies, going to more church services, Mm. writing more checks, and we're not multiplying disciples. The definition of discipleship has to include the multiplication of disciples. So if you are maturing disciples, then you are also reproducing disciples, which means then you should also be at least replacing yourself, if not growing, right? And so Mm -hmm. I, I think out of a defensive posture, a lot of churches and pastors have gone, I want to create more mature disciples. And what we've done is create like little seminarians, right, who who want to learn more about the Bible, but they're not reproducing themselves in discipleship. And therefore, it is failed discipleship. It's not mature discipleship. Hmm. I, I would say the most oxymoronic statement we have in the church is disciples who make disciples. It, it, it's, it's unnecessarily repetitive because you're not a disciple if you're not making new disciples. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven. I'm not saying that you don't believe right. in Jesus, but you are not an apprentice of Jesus. Right. If you are not leading others into relationship with Jesus and deeper in their relationship with him. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, and- so I think, I think what they're getting at in this, this first one here, the stable church is we've been through so much disruption in the North American church, whether it's been the pandemic, um, politics, which we're going to get into um, in a little bit. I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, <laughs> you know, r- the, the racial reckoning that's come to, to North America. Th- there have been these disruptions where uh, you're not just going to be stable and sitting around anymore. Um, it's, it's one or the other. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm looking for a quote, and I can't, I can't find it, that um, a friend of ours shared, and actually a copy of this, a copy of the book was left for me, and now I'm uh, and I'm going blank on it. And the statistic says that um, that we have more people have left the church in the la- since the 90s than who came to Christ through the the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham revivals combined. Right. The book is the great the great yes, de-churching. The great de-churching. Yep. Uh, so, like, we have undone the work of the of the first great awakening the second great awakening billy graham's revivals we have undone that work if you add to that what we know of generational change in church attendance that boomers had a tendency to ten, attend church every week pre-covid and um gen x millennials gen z do not then if then you are not replacing boomers who are go- going on to glory right then just just by the change of culture in generations you are automatically in decline I think Larry and I have mentioned um, the statistic we heard in our doctoral process that in Western North Carolina, where they did the study that said for every boomer that tithes to the church, it takes seven millennials to replace them in their giving. So for every one active boomer who gives you money and helps uphold your budget, you need seven millennials to replace them. Uh, So I think that alone proves (laughs) Carrie's point to say, then if you're not adding seven new millennials for every boomer you're losing, you're in trouble financially, uh, let alone from a discipleship sort of maturity standpoint. And I'm not aware of many, if any, churches who are doing that currently. <laughs> no. So you need seven people our age for every boomer that goes to meet Jesus. We're not doing that. So we are in, we are in decline. That segues great into the second one. We start to get into some uh, generational yeah. uh, stuff there um, that starts to show us that it's not just boomers dying. It's just them not coming back. So number yeah. two was millenni- <laughs> millennials are the new core of your church. And he wrote, one of the most significant shifts in the last few years is that millennials have embraced church attendance faster than any other demographic, surpassing their attendance levels in 2019. Millennial attendance is surging, especially among non-white millennials. And according to the same Barna survey, 30% of white millennials report attending church regularly post-COVID, up from 26% pre-pandemic. But non-white millennials have returned with even greater zeal. Fully 40% of non-white millennials say they are attending church post-COVID, up from 31% pre-pandemic. Of course, this is also partly fueled by the fact that boomers didn't come back to church the way most people expected them to. Mm. Buy, sell, qualify. I'm buying it. I'm buying that. I, I, I see it even in six months at Grace Church. I see it. I'm uh, buying it. I'm, I'm buying it 
And I have another unsolicited opinion that's going to get me more hate mail. But, um, Adam, you go first. You buy yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm afraid. I, I, I buy it um, with the qualification that we're not quite seeing that in my context. Uh, however, I will say the millennials, the new millennials that we have had come to the church since I've been here are coming for a very specific reason. It's, there's kind of a common theme um, that they sense the cultural bankruptcy all around them and they're looking mm. for something meaningful. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. For yeah. them and their family. Yeah. yeah and I, I think what you said there is really important. It, it is very contextual. So we're talking in yeah. broad strokes, but that's not true across the board. I mean, when yeah. I was in Tremont, boomers came back after after COVID very, very well. It was actually yeah. my millennials um, that we struggled to get back because they found other things to fill their Sunday mornings with. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this context and in a lot of other contexts, you're seeing that that, that boomers aren't coming back as quick. Um that they f- they figured out that they can they can have a second cup of coffee and watch church from their couch, um, and not have to be there. And so, a lot of churches are experiencing this um, through losing their volunteer force. Yeah. I was going to say because we bo- should boomers were their big servants. We shouldn't. We sh- I wouldn't want boomers who are like watching, you know, engaging church online to feel judgment for that because. In the next episode, we're going to talk about some of the digital options that come up on this list, right? And that discipleship can happen digitally, um, and we're going to have some opinions about that. But I think what happened is the super volunteers, the, the boomers who are super volunteers, who are passionate about ministry and holding it up, um, I think we, I think we still have them, right? The head ushers, uh, the leaders of the women's circle, things like that. I think what I've noticed is it's those who were kind of on the fringes who attended things, but didn't necessarily lead things that that transition away has been easier. But if we're going to be people who say that you can engage church online through, and that that's legitimate, then it's not, it's not that we've like lost them altogether. Some are still sending in uh, tithes and offerings, but worshiping online while they snowbird or snowbird in another state. It's we lost their volunteerism. And the church is really hurting in that regard because the number of people we have to hold up programs and ministries has shifted as that generation. And and then we experienced, they may come back, but they go, I'm not serving at the capacity that I used to serve because that was too much. I'm tired, right? So we're watching that lack of volunteerism happen whether they came back or not, right? Yeah, Uh, I'm totally, I'm definitely buying this number two. uh, Well, to the, to the degree that millennials are the new core because they're the young adults. They're the 28 through 43-year-olds. They're, they're, they're starting their families. You know, We're having children later in life uh, to some degree, and so they're looking for, to get their children engaged, socialized, not as isolated, coming out of COVID you know, in safe spaces where there's a place for family growth and values uh, to be established and uh, just build that community up around them. So absolutely buying that. And I think so I, I, Gabe, you reminded me of a, a quote. <laughs> Somebody had to text me the other day, and then I accidentally said something similar to Gabe. The text to me was, um, "Sarah, we're in midlife now, so like this is what we do. We're we're adults yeah. now." Essentially, was what they told me. And I've had to look at Gabe and go, "We're not young adults. We are just the adults, right? <laughs> this is <laughs> we're we're adulting. This is what we do." And I think that because culture has a hard time adopting generational shifts. Gen Z are young adults. Millennials are just adults, right? Mm, so yeah. it, ten, it tends to be that when okay. you hit your 30s and 40s, you're teaching Sunday school classes and bringing your kids to church and serving on the committees and teams. So we're watching a shift that has always happened. You reach your 30s and 40s and you start getting involved in, in leadership and becoming the regulars of the church. Yeah, I think part of what's at stake where a lot of churches are lagging behind in this, and we alluded to it, um, is how to relate to millennials differently than we did with boomers. Um, boomers were great givers. Um, and a lot of them, some of them are still giving and watching from their couch, but a lot of them aren't. Uh, and millennials have the highest income level of any generation, um, but less 
if um, we do liquid cash <laughs> yeah no yeah but uh, we do but we have less liquid cash available yeah. than any generation so until um you know uh and he points out in the article that as boomers age and start passing away, millennial children are going to receive the most significant wealth transfer in human history, but they ain't there yet. And we, we have assumed wrongly, um, maybe, maybe just naively in the church that millennials are going to give the same way that boomers did. Mm -hmm. So we, we, a lot of times just approach it like we're going to take our offering now. So what? Why why should I put money? Why, why why should I put money in that basket? Like what's the compelling? So, um, we have to disciple them <laughs> in giving. Yeah, it, it, it's so much more than a butt in the pew or someone to serve. They have to be discipled in. Um, oh, in, you, in giving. oh, you mean and part of that maturing of disciple really part? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's part of growth. It's part part uh, of that maturing not disciple. Comes out, uh, I've yet to meet a disciple that comes out of the box fully mature. Right. <laughs> uh, there, there, there's there's work that goes into that. Yeah. So. But, can I can I give my hot take that will get me hate mail? <clears throat> Maybe not. Proceed. <laughs> Let's do it. I think there has statistically, numerically, been a shift that millennials make up the new majority of the church. But I but I think that um, the older generations still hold uh, the power um, and still still in some ways really dictate how ministry happens and we're watching that in the real world too right so that the handoff of power and leadership though millennials may be numerically replacing boomers like in the workforce or in government and politics that the power is still being held uh, like what we do and how we do it in the church is is still sort of being done for the sake of that generation that's now going on to glory i'm waiting for the controversial part of what you said well, I mean, if you're, if there, you there are, there was no hot take there. Like, if that's you are, just, if you are older fact. than me, so that's offensive, right? Yeah, right. So, like, no, and, I, I, I think, I think most older folks would hear that and go, "Yeah," because we should have the authority. I mean, you know, we, and, and that's you can get all sorts of yeah, you can put do all sorts of generational system studies and stuff in that, but there, there's a sense of we waited our turn to be in power, now it's ours. Um, yeah where things are just accelerating so much faster now, where as a millennial, I I'm starting to get the get off my lawn piece as I move into, a, you know, this, this ministry, as everybody is talking about um, Gen Z stepping into leadership in the church. And I'm like, Whoa, wait, it's my turn. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm sure boomers have that. Yeah. Same feeling. It, it, yes. And, the, and, but there, there has been this weird thing that's happened in culture. So, and I could be very wrong. Um, if I understand correctly, like the, the, our presidents, the age of our presidents have, have, have only gotten older since John F. Kennedy Jr. So there, there typically would be a generational handoff in politics, right? Where it goes from one generation to the next. And that's not yet happened as uh, governmental leadership sort of stays in the hands of uh, boomers and silent generation and is not yet handed backwards. And, and we're just, yeah, I can see a growing tension in, in millennials. Like, if, if we're where the numbers are, and if we're currently in leadership, uh, that there's this frustration uh, that we can't actually get anything done or do things the way that, that we would want them to be done or need them to be done, because we may hold the numbers, but we don't hold the power. And um, that, for me, that may be on the, on the list of things that cause a church to, to be in decline and not in growth, is you can have a church full of millennials, but if they don't have voice, right, to accomplish um, what they're called to in ministry, then then there will be a tension that's unresolved in the church that will affect your ability to make more and maturing disciples. Yeah, I think the tension is going to extend to the millennials as well as we continue to have this Gen Z conversation. As, yeah. You know, like there, I, I've talked to a lot of millennials who feel like we're just going to get passed over. Yeah. You know, that and... And we Maybe probably we should. should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, pr- we probably should be because if not, we just repeat the pattern. If we have the opportunity to, to build church in a way that will minister to Gen Z for the next 30 years, then we need to do that. So then, the, so then when Gen Alpha comes behind Gen Z, Gen Z is ready to hand it to them and they don't enter into the same sort of power struggle. We'll, we'll just keep repeating that cycle. 
Well, and we think of millennials, and we Gabe pointed this out, the ages, we think of uh, millennials as being young. They're not. The, the oldest not Gen Z is going to turn 27 this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, I had somebody in a, in a church recently go, um, is, is there a young adult class? Can I go young, to the young adult class? And I said, how old are you? And they were like, 36. And I go, you're just in the adult class. No, we're we're not going to keep bumping it out for you. Yeah, right. (laughs) First it was eighteen to twenty-five, then it was eighteen to thirty, then it was eighteen to thirty-five. That's that's what happened for me. I mean, I'm I'm technically Gen X. I'm Gen. I think you're officially Gen X. We know. I'm officially. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we all know. Um, And you know, the the big joke for Gen Xers is we were completely just like forgotten it was just a flyover yeah. uh because of who was in charge in front of us and what was happening in the life of of just technological growth expanse politics all the stuff um we that's the big joke that's it's fun to kind of watch some of that uh unfold and and oh i, I might identify a little bit with that i don't i personally don't find offense with it just other than it's it's just just interesting to note and so now millennials might be seeing that happen again with uh, those who come after them with gen uh, z and and alpha but well yeah no this is millennials are mad about it if millennials are mad about getting skipped over Gen X gets to be really mad. About it. Yeah, I was just thinking <laughs> that Scott. as you as you, as you said that, Gabe. I was thinking that like we have not mentioned Gen X at all. <laughs> no, we don't exist. We See, that's, and that's my point. That's my point. I mean, it's just yeah. you've made it very clear. <laughs> the, di- the difference so, being that Gen X is like we don't care if we're the invisible generation. Please let us be invisible. <laughs> well, yeah, at this point, like, yeah, go ahead. Just just keep running that train right into the wall. Go ahead. <laughs> So let me read his intro on Gen Z will start to reshape the church. Uh, In the same way millennials have grown up, the oldest Gen Z turns 27 in 2024. Many are hardly kids anymore, and they're definitely not just students. They're adults, and in 2024, you'll start to see how Gen Z is reshaping the church. Um, He he, he wrote another article on it you can read. In addition, the Gen Z who have stuck around want to go all in on their faith. They're not interested in Christianity light or the we attend church faith of their parents. They want to follow Jesus with passion and are all in on community. Serving, giving, and evangelism are all byproducts of their all or nothing faith. Gen Z Z church will likely be less produced, more personal, less performance-based, more authentic, and finally less head-driven, more heart-driven. Buy, sell, qualify. Sarah's already bought it. Yep, buy. I love it. 150% buy. I love the cult, it. Mostly yep. because cultural Christianity is on its way out. Yeah. You know, as as a normative cultural practice that everybody does and it is now increasingly countercultural to be a Christian. And especially for that generation, it is a very intentional, very countercultural choice um, that very few of their peers are choosing to engage. Hmm. And and they're doing it all in, like like you yeah. said, there there's not. I mean, if they're doing it, it's definitely countercultural. When so many of their um, their millennial um, church going friends are deconstructing and continuing to deconstruct, and we can we've talked about that on the podcast, and we can talk more about why that is. Um, they're they're going all in uh, on this thing, even if they're the minority. Um, yeah, which they is know which the, is the tide of cultures against them, but they're going to stick in with it. Which is why we have to be really careful about, like, you know, when he says in the first one that the church is either growing or in decline, there is no stable church. Like, there are plenty of churches that are growing, like, plenty. And and they're growing in a all-in, heartfelt, sincere, make me a mature disciple, make me more like Christ kind of way. What we're, what we're seeing is the decline of this, like, American Methodism where you just attend and participate, and it makes us think that the church is, like, in trouble. It's in trouble in the sense that you may not be able to operate your buildings and programs as as you have. It's not mm-hmm. in trouble in the sense that there are plenty of people who are finding their, their way to Jesus and and surrendering everything to him here in the States, you know, but all over the world, too. I'm excited about this one because it kind of reminds me of my church experience in the 90s. Uh, um, there was at least here and and because I'm coming home again, right. I'm being reminded of all of this that, you know, when, when we were teenagers in the youth group here, 
like we had an account, we had accountability groups as teenagers. We would spend hours just in worship and like in the hallway, some guy had a guitar and would just, uh, instead of going to parties or games or whatever, would just like hang out and worship. And, uh, we enjoyed worship. We pursued, um, uh, time together in Christian community, like had standards for our lives. Like we're not going to R rated movies. My accountability group will say, you know, that that's, not Christ-like and inappropriate for the stage of life I'm in. And and I'm seeing that depth of it, you need to prove it with your life, not just say it, that this generation is embracing again. That's really refreshing. And I know that not everybody's experience, you know, in the church a few decades ago was like that, but it was for me. And it's really refreshing to see a taste of that again. Yeah, I think I'm buying it um, because I think uh, like some of the things that are breaking out on college campuses are showing us uh, what Gen Z church will look like. We've talked about the Asbury revival before. I'm reading the book right now, Taken by Surprise, um, kind of a historical mm. just accounting of what happened uh, without trying to read anything into it or whatever. Um, and the part where he says in the article that Gen Z church will be less produced, more personal, less performance-based, more authentic, that's what they saw at Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Asbury revival, the the preacher for chapel that day texted his wife and said, "I ra- I laid a real stinky one today. Like <laughs> it was a bad sermon, it, it, you know." And he's like, "You know that one's getting thrown away." And then pretty soon, um, there's just a group of students still sitting there um, worshiping, and then it turns into this huge, you know, um, two weeks or however long it was, um, and the authenticity in it. Um, one of the first things I noticed reading the book, and I'm, I, I've been highlighting every time I see it, was public confession. Yeah, uh, yeah. Was part of it. The, the first time that some, it's, the first time it, there's an account of someone uh, sharing a public confession with the room, someone else wrote the entire atmosphere changed. Yeah. How many churches have done away with communal prayers of confession? Or encourage yeah. people to do individual confession, even. Yeah. yeah. And and the, the the threat when we we think in terms of um, of attractional church of of big produced fancy lights whatever uh, we're not thinking about confession. And, yeah. and confession mm-hmm. is what 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 sparked this this whole thing. And if you watched any of the videos coming out of Asbury, there was nothing polished about it. And uh, no, I have to admit I bristle a little, but I think part of why public confession get a uh, has gone away is because we saw an abuse of it, right? You'll hear stories of folks who go, um, my mom dragged me up in front of the congregation because I did something wrong and made me tell the congregation what I did wrong. And the pastor, you know, rebuked me in front of the congregation. We're not talking about that. That is not, that the Lord has, that's (laughs) abuse. We're we're talking, and, and there's a good reason maybe that the pendulum sort of swung away from that a bit. But what we did was throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's very different than going, the Lord has convicted my heart, right? Over something I've done personally. And I'm, I'm experiencing forgiveness and reconciliation with Christ. And I want it with you. And, and doing that sort of publicly in front of people, there is there is a difference. What they long for in worship is really beautiful. Here's what I'm interested in. We should already be talking about Gen Alpha, though, right? Like, mm-hmm. like the trends need to move towards tre- Gen Z right now. But in the next 10 years, they need to be moving towards Gen Alpha, or we're in the same pattern again, right? Yeah, right. That's our kids. So I- That's our kids. Yeah. Yep. I- I, I think it's – I say this as someone who's in the millennial camp of we're about to get passed over. I'm all about handing this thing to Gen Z now. Yeah. Because I, I'm in for it. Like I, I'm a part of a, a huge church now. Um, and we – and I remember George saying this before I even got here, and now I've seen it to be true. We do attractional worship better than anybody I know. Mm. But we get less results from it than we ever mm. have before. People are coming in for authentic community, not because we have a fog machine and lights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the conversations I had with a, a Gen Z person recently was what they're hungering for in our worship is silence and space and mm. spontaneity in the spirit not being produced down to the minute. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if they want produced down to the minute, they can spend a thousand dollars and go to a Taylor Swift concert, and it's going yep. to be done way better than any church they can go to. Yeah, we can't mm-hmm. compete with that. No, they're not looking for a worship experience. 
No. They're looking for worship before the living God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm cool handing that off. I, I will uh, give this as long one. As, as long as they keep paying me. Yeah. <laughs> I will give this one caveat, a qualification, right, is that because I hear a lot of folks our age and older bristle at the thought of handing it over because they go, they're not mature enough. They're not wise enough. They can't make decisions. How do we hand them the theology and history and practice of the church in a place of immaturity that's dangerous and irresponsible? I think they're making an assumption. I'm not talking about handing it over to just all Gen Z, period, right? Uh, but there are certainly Gen Z you see in your church who are pursuing Christ-likeness and show Christian maturity and have wisdom in the same way that as a pastor now, if if a 45-year-old walked up to me and said, I want to lead worship, I'm going to have some, some questions about their qualifications for that, uh, about their maturity in Christ, their ability to discern and lead well, their, their general maturity. Uh, I'm going to have those same questions as I hand it over to people who are younger. So it's not just like rip the band-aid, the whole generation gets whatever say they want, but doing that in a really discerning way, right? And I, because I think that folks our age and older go, you can't because it may come at the cost of the things we believe in our history. And that's not the case. You hand it, you hand it discerningly to to a mature, maturing Christian. Yeah, and it's not like an abdication of your responsibility. Exactly. We're talking about yeah, we're talking about mentorship and allowing you know bringing these voices up alongside yours and bringing them into the dialogue, allowing them to be part of the the conversation and life of the church, um, and learning from one another. Uh, You know, I mean, when when it comes to Gen Z. I think all of us could learn how to bring our whole selves. You know, we talk, we use this word authentic or authentic or authenticity quite a bit. And like, what does it actually mean? Right. I think it means being able to bring your whole self, not just before Jesus, but before your church family and um, not simply bringing the parts of yourself that you want other people to see and creating a version of yourself that is not congruent with who you truly are. Um, and if, if anyone could be accused of doing that, it's definitely church people, uh, traditionally. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. And I think, I think this is something where we can learn from the black church, the historically black church. Uh, they do spiritual parenting way Mm -hmm. better, um, than the white church ever has. Um, that there's this investment in generational handoff that's important. Our um, uh, finance and administration person here at Grace Church uh, just came back from her sabbatical, uh, and she said she had this moment on her sabbatical where she was like, now that George is gone, I'm the oldest person on staff. Like, the lead pastor is younger than me. All the pastors are younger than me. What am I doing here? And she Mm -hmm. felt the Lord tell her, they need you. Mm. And we were able to say back to her, no, we need the experience you have in the way you see through administrative things to, to help us. And the same thing works with discipleship and, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. That's authenticity. Yeah. Uh, follow me as, as I follow Christ. We can, we can, uh, we lowered the bar for far too long. Like just come into church, yeah. sit down. You don't have to do anything else. And we tried to create this, this perfect seeker sensitive, um, experience, um, that I think led to a lot of the deconstruction and the great dechurching, um, because there w- there was no solid foundation uh, or maturity to to faith. Uh, when I listened to the podcast version of this, there were two things that were said that I really loved uh, about this: that the sign of a mature church is immaturity, because that yeah. means there are new be- new believers around who are yes. learning from mature believers. Um, and then talking about like overproducing. Um, uh, and, and, and polishing worship, trying to create these perfect environments. Um, one of the guys told a story about um, kind of like Biodome. Anybody remember that Pauly Shore movie? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, like I do. They, did, they, did, they did this experiment where they, they, they planted trees in the perfect situation. It was perfect soil with the perfect pH balance, perfect temperature, um, and then all the trees fell over. Yep. Because they needed the wind. They had no root they, system. They, 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 they needed the wind to help them develop their root systems. And in that artificial environment, there was nothing real about it. 
you know, and, and wow. we need the realness of, like Adam said, of bringing our whole selves before, before a church family, before in in authentic community, and being able to to grow together, even even when things aren't great. Yeah, mm-hmm. and here's um, you know what your administrator, you guys need her maturity, and she and, and she needs a coming generation after her, right? To to um, we need each other, and we have siloed it so badly that it's like. Uh, we should be leaning into reverse mentoring, right? So, so you're teaching me what does the next generation need, what's important to you, but I'm also bringing some wisdom to help troubleshoot. And I don't think new generations are resistant to that, but we think that people are going to be resistant to that, and so we sort of we're sort of scared to really do life and ministry together in a way that acknowledges all parts. We need maturity and wisdom. We need fresh wind and fresh ideas and. Um, the courage that young people bring to the table to experiment and try things. And we have just, I think we've gotten so afraid of those conversations, but I'll hear, I'll hear folks go, new generations aren't coachable. They're not teachable. But I, but I find that works in reverse too. I know a lot of adults, right? Just adults who are not teachable and coachable by new generations either. And and we need both of those pieces, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, definitely- Let's, uh, Go ahead, Gabe. No, you're fine. Move on quick, though. Go ahead. You're fine. No, I just think that what we've been talking about, uh, this is just a really big piece. Um, And that's why we've been dwelling on it so much. It's that impartation and connection between all the generations working together in that multi-generational format. The church is a family. It's brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, all coming together. And there has to be uh, just that information transfer back and forth. I in, in the conversation about um, you know just confession and just the depth uh, of what Gen Z is is bringing to the life of the church. Uh, there was a quote that uh, that popped in uh, one of my feeds that I, I kind of chewed on and responded to. Um, Steve Seaman shared it uh, about the prayer of agony, and I think it might apply here a little bit. Just that the sense of uh, he was quoting something from Mike Mason in the Gospel according to Job. Um, just the idea that there's there's no true prayer without agony, and that goes along with that that metaphor of the the biodome. There's no roots if it's just a perfect system. If there's no wind, uh, there's no there's no struggle. Uh, and the quote goes, perhaps this is the problem in many of our churches. What little prayer we have is shallow, timid, carefully censored, full of uh, oratorical flourishes and hot air. Uh, that there is little agony. In it, and therefore a little honesty or humility, uh, and then it goes on. Um, I won't share it all, but just the idea that it, it's hard for us to to be honest with ourselves. It's hard to look in the mirror and just be completely vulnerable and to see ourselves as we really are. We try to dress it up, put makeup on, put nice clothes on, put the smile on, uh, particularly in social settings. But more and more, it seems like what the Spirit is calling us to always and what seems to be more aware in the awakening sense when we wake up we realize that we can't live with the mask on we have to take the masks off uh, to be our authentic selves Um, you know even though we're inundated with constant updates and new 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 tech faster faster it comes down to it. Just being human is 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 recognizing our, our mortality, our frailness, uh, um, and our need for salvation and growth. Yeah, I like that you you mentioned we have lost the family piece to ministry, and a lot of what we've named can be solved with that. We still say the most successful way to ensure that your children grow up to be practicing. Christians is that they get to do that with a generational body of believers, right? That grandparents, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, kids doing it together. And um, yeah, some of this generational talk is really addressing that we've lost that in the life of the church, a, a humility that is required it's, of doing it together. It's one of those, it's one of those pieces that, that we've missed in, in attractional church. Like we think, you know, have a killer youth group. Okay. Have a killer youth group. That's fine. But it was a study recently about the what it took to have an enduring faith into your college years. And the number one thing of that was a family that practiced their faith at home together, yeah. not youth group. Second mm-hmm. was weekly participation in intergenerational worship, mm. which 
I've been doing a happy dance because I've been siloed. one of people that pu- yeah. I've pushed against children's church for years and yeah. gotten a lot of hate mail for it. But I'm like, boom, that's all I need right there. Right. Like, yeah, they, you don't want to you know, silo anyway. it away because you don't know how to grow up if you don't have anybody to look up to. Right. So yeah. it's that intergener- intergenerational um, piece. Hey, we've got we've got two more to get through, um, and I don't want people Quickly to stop listening. and briefly. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so number five, total, total Quickly different uh, turn here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We don't do anything quickly briefly. or briefly. Uh, but, okay, but this is a hard turn from what we've been talking about. Five, partisan extremism will continue to fuel short-term church growth, but not long-term church growth. Is Over it a hard right years, turn or a hard left turn? <laughs> we're going to find out. <laughs> Over the last you turn years, Stop it! <laughs> Over the last few years, more than a few conservative pastors have been have seen rapid growth by choosing a side in the culture wars and taking positions on partisan po- political issues. To be fair, progressive pastors sometimes take hardline stances too, but rarely see any growth as, as a result. <laughs> Given that 2024 is an election year, expect this trend to peak in November in the hopes that a pastor's slate of candidates or an ideology wins at the box office. I buy Bye, and so. I... I buy and I hope it, it peaks at November. I'm not, I'm not as, maybe I'm qualifying. Oh, I'm not as it's, optimistic. It's November. It's peaking now. That, it, that'd be my qualification. Oh, it's, I think it may peak a little bit later. Like you'll have to get uh, the, whoever's elected, right? Like into office and, and government and then sort of see it. I'm, I'm thinking it may not peak for a little while after November, but hopefully, hopefully it's not like, eight more years ahead of us of this kind of, you know, partisanship. So we've had an interesting, Adam? go, oh, go ahead, ahead. Adam. I know <laughs> we've had an interesting 10 to 15 years, uh, politically, uh, and we've seen a lot of, uh, things just in our lifetime, but it's again, not much different than, I mean, it is, and it isn't the last 50 years, uh, politically, um, as far as buy, sell or qualify, eh, I just it it kind of rubs me uh, the wrong way just to just to you know and we've talked about this before um, not drawing the name that we've used just that cultural Christianity American Christianity that that the nationalism uh, within our faith and marrying that all together uh, it, it it just makes it really makes it really ugly in the church when we're sitting on two sides uh, a political issue but we're looking at Christ as you know the head of the church and trying to figure out how to be brothers and sisters we can have different ideologies different opinions on things politically but you know and we've seen that kind of trickle in to the life of the church and it just it divides the church uh, it doesn't bring it together and so and that's the whole idea of short-term long-term growth for um what it what it does to the church 2024 is certainly going to bring a lot of fireworks um not necessarily good celebratory ones um in the life of the church but it certainly reveals and like covid did to the church it pulls back the masks it exposes where the fault lines are it shows us who we really are are we disciples or are we just trying to look like disciples because we want to you know steer people to vote a certain way uh, and align a certain way politically um and I think the horse has to draw the cart, not the not the other way around. I, I'm buying it. I think the moment you you bring partisan politics into the pulpit, you're instantly going to alienate a good majority of people that your your church is is trying to to reach. I do think in the culture we're in, where everybody is in their corners and ready to fight, is where you get the short term growth. But yeah. we were just talking about Gen Z. I, I don't think they're going to buy that. They are not going to buy a Christian community that is built along partisan lines. The, the the church of the future is going to look like Democrats, Republicans, independents all together uh, rowing the same direction where it doesn't matter as much as if you disagree with me on a political issue. We we agree on Jesus yeah. um, and, and his power in our lives where uh, cultural American Christianity has been anything but that. Yeah, I've I've had a few conversations with folks, you know, wishing that, um, you know, our brands of of Methodism would take harder lines on particular positions because they're watching other denominations do that. And I do think it benefits them again in the short term that you're sort of uh, gathering with people who agree with you. But anybody my age and younger is put off by 
um, that sort of extremism, they are not won over by it. And I think it's, I think it's this, that the generations younger than us are having to learn as small children how to live in a very diverse world. So they get on the school bus and they have families in their classes and kids on their bus whose lifestyles are very different, whose family dynamics are very different, their politics are very different, and they're, they're, they're living in that every day. So our children, what our children experience of politics uh, is different than how our generations have dealt and those older than us have dealt with it. And I, I yeah, I'm with him. I think that long term, it, it doesn't help to draw lines in the sands. I don't think younger gen- generations will tolerate it. But similar to what you shared, Sarah, most of the difficult conversations I've had with folks, uh, many of whom ended up leaving the churches I've served over the years, have been people who wish that I drew a harder line on whatever their pet stance was. Um, And so I think that is pretty prevalent amongst existing Christians who are looking for a church that aligns with their political stances first and foremost, and then the rest of everything else. Um, I've actually been contacted by a couple of people who were shopping for churches that the first questions they asked me about (laughs) my church weren't what we believe theologically, but what we believe politically. Um, Mm, And I very politely told them that this may not be the church for you. Um, (laughs) So, um, you know, but I I definitely think that that's, that's pretty common uh, to see, especially these days, and that it probably will um, continue to, to fuel short-term church growth in certain churches for a while. Um, but like Sarah said, yeah, it's not sustainable. So, yes, bye for me. The struggle is so real. You know, you can't divorce your faith from your from from your life, and your life includes politics and making decisions that affect the masses it it's it's just a very real struggle it's 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 really not a judgment thing uh per se other than to what's what's first is christ first is the cross first or is it your nationalism what's what's first yeah and it's not yeah it's not that it doesn't matter but but what matters most yeah Yeah. and your churches like we can't your churches will likely have have groups a majority maybe of people who think similarly because of your theology and because of your your practice of faith it informs your politics and therefore your church might have a majority makeup but the very the very hard lining you have to believe these things and it's a headline on your church's you know uh website i think those days are ending and i'm glad they're ending um i'm over it yeah, like like Greg Greg Locke in, in Tennessee saying, yeah. if, if if you if you don't vote Democrat, don't come in this church, you demon." And yeah. like wow. he had roaring applause for it, roaring wow. applause in yeah. the church he was in. And and there's a there's a church in my area that's um, called like American Patriot Church or something like that. And their their tagline is unapologetically uh, American and Christ centered. I'm like, okay, which one's coming first? Mm. Uh, so yeah, buying it. Uh, last one. Uh, and then we'll take the other two next month. A new kind of mega church pastor will continue to emerge. We've all sadly watched mega church pastor after mega church pastor resign as a result of scandal. Many have also led well and stepped back quietly after decades in ministry. Of course, those stories never get coverage, but many of them do exist. The story that rarely gets told is of leaders who of the leaders who replace these legacy pastors. Sometimes they're young Gen X leaders, but more often than not, they're millennials. Here's what's interesting. You probably can't even name five of them. Many of these leaders embrace a totally different style than their predecessors. They're less top-down and more consensus-based, less interested in popularity and platform and more interested in local ministry, less concerned about their name getting out there and more concerned about leading well in their context, less focused on bringing back the past and more focused on building a new future, less fixated on size and more fixated on health. Ironically, with that focus, many are now leading a church larger, larger than that of their predecessor. Buy, sell, qualify. Buy, buy, buy. And it's exactly what we were talking about in the previous points, right? That because of the desire for authenticity, heart-led stuff, this is should not be a surprise to anybody. It, I, I'm going to buy it, but I'm just going to qualify that I don't think this just applies to mega church pastors. No, uh, I yeah. think a new generation of pastors is emerging where this is is the more important thing. Not how many books I can write or conferences that I speak at, but yep. 
am I am I serving well and faithfully where I'm at, and definitely less fixated on size and. Yeah, we want more disciples, sure, but we also want more mature disciples. Um, so I, I think it applies to pastors and churches of all sizes. Um, but I think we've had enough of the scandal season. Uh, I just finished the the Hillsong Exposed documentary. Uh, oh, holy I can't cow! Even watch it. We need to we need to move on from that yeah. era. Wow. We need yeah. to move on from the Instagram account Lord of preachers willing. and sneakers talking about you know pastors wearing eight thousand dollars sneakers and. Uh, we need we need to move on from that and 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 advance the kingdom of God and and not just you know make a name for ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amen. I'll uh, I'll buy uh, with a qualification that the inherent risk of leading a large church is that it is easier to only bring part of yourself, the part that you want people to see, to it. Then, then it. I mean, and that's just that's just inherent to serving a larger church versus a smaller church, right? So, like, I think that temptation will always be there uh, for pastors of large churches. But I am encouraged to hear um, that they are in line with kind of what we've been talking about with this authenticity and bringing your whole self um, that that Gen Z is valuing. Uh, which, again, I think is Christ- cultural Christianity goes away. Um, that's what you have to do, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the things I really appreciate about about serving with Wes is he's just real. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we, we've had him on the podcast. Like, uh, they're still a little like when he'll say stuff from the pulpit, like like I'm your pastor and I'm in therapy. Like some of the older folks still are like, oh my gosh, but <laughs> the younger folks are all all like, my pastor's in therapy. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, the and, and his, yeah. And his and his intentional focus on accountability, like he's seen that trail of tears that comes from mega church pastors, and the, and he also knows his own capacity for sin, mm-hmm. as we should all know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we surround ourselves intentionally with people that can hold us accountable, uh, yeah. and that it's okay to say, "Hey, I think you're you're, you're straying somewhere here." So yeah. I, I I'm excited to see that trend continue. Yep. So, hey, uh, real quick, by the time this airs, um, the Super Bowl will be next Sunday. Uh, it'll be the first time in several years that we're not all together for the Super Bowl, oh. um, which is which is very Don't sad. Very Zoom sad. meeting. We're going to Zoom it. Uh, yeah. But uh, we, it's potential we could Zoom it. Uh, but there will be no wings or, you know, whatever. So I thought we'd do a really, really, really Dang quick it, Larry. Uh, Round of Super Bowl trivia, but not the kind of Super Bowl trivia that's going to make Sarah go, I don't sport. I don't care. Uh, we're going to talk about Super Bowl commercials and hey. food. Okay? Hey. So we're all good with that. Uh, and I, even made a, I even made a multiple choice uh, for you. Uh, Thank and you. as a teaser for next episode, when we talk about discipleship and AI, uh, this was created by ChatGPT. So there we go. So did All you right, create it? No, you click, click, click. I gave it a prompt. I gave it a prompt. <laughs> That's um, fantastic. So awesome. a, which <laughs> snack is often referred to as the official Super Bowl food? A, nachos, Doritos, B, wings, or C, pizza? What? I'm going nachos. I'm going wings. Fib? Going it. Pizza. I'm going, I'm going pizza. From the Ooh, it is wings. Wings. Oh. Hey. Now, uh, they've branded themselves as the official food, but we'll see. Uh, in 2021, which comedian starred in the Cheetos commercial, It Wasn't Me? Uh, A, Kevin Hart, B, Jimmy Fallon, or C, Will Ferrell? Oh. Kevin Hart. Kevin, I don't remember it. I don't remember it. We what was B? Who was, who was I'm B? Going, I'm going Kevin Hart. B is, B is Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, we'll go Fallon. I, yeah, I'll go Fallon. It is Fallon. Okay. Uh, he had he had a bunch of cheesy fingers. Saying it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, three in the Super Bowl commercial, Clydesdale respect. What animal befriends the iconic Budweiser Clydesdales? A a Dalmatian, B a duck, or C an eagle? Dalmatian. A duck. Wait wait wait. Go oh, back. Well, say it again. Well, shoot. In the Super Bowl commercial, Clydesdale respect. What animal befriends the iconic Budweiser Clydesdales? It's a Dalmatian. It's that's what we want to think. Yeah. 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 It is a Dalmatian. All right. Which car company featured Matthew McConaughey in a super, in a surreal Super Bowl commercial? Yep. The Lincoln. Lincoln. All right. Might have been going to give you the option. That velvet voice, man. (laughs) All right. 
<laughs> Which brand's commercial famously featured a time machine? A. Doritos, B. Taco Bell, or C. Pizza Hut? Choqueo, Taco Bell. Doritos. They win. Which brand Super Bowl commercial famously introduced the chanting frogs? A. Bud Light, B. Budweiser, or C. Coors Light? Budweiser. Light. Budweiser. Budweiser. It wasn't Bud Light? No, no, because it was three frogs. Bud. That's right. All right. So back, it go, takes us back to question one. Last question. Even though wings are considered the official <laughs> snack of the Super Bowl, it's not number one. Which yeah. snack is the top consumed food item for the big game? Is it A, pigs in a blanket, B, chips and salsa, or C, chili? Chips and salsa. Chips and salsa. Volume would be chili, but chips and salsa. It's the lowest effort. It's the lowest yeah. common denominator. You you stop by the store I, on your way to somebody's party and pick up chips and salsa. Chili. But and we can put the chili on the chips. But lots and lots of people make chili for the Super Bowl, and only the Super, like you know what I mean. Like that's when you make it. Uh, what is it? What is it? Dang it! I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go chips and salsa. It is chips and salsa. Hey. It threw me for a second because I thought pigs and blanket was like. Like odd enough that it was in there, but maybe it was. Yeah. But it wasn't. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so that was a little more fun because nobody even remembers who played last year. Um, who played actually, last it year? Was the chief, it was the Chiefs and the Eagles. The Chiefs won 38 uh, <laughs> See, but nobody really remembered that. So uh, that's all the time we have I? for today. Chiefs fans do. You I'll were at that. my house in Tremont. I was a Chiefs fan. I, I have zero recollection. We were all together. Anyway, that's all the time we have for today. Next month, we'll be talking about uh, the two that we uh, pulled out, digital discipleship and AI adoption in the church. And we continue having these conversations because we've given our lives to see the church reawakened and renewed for future generations. And though there have been all sorts of disruptions, good, bad, and ugly, we believe that the church is still the hope of the world and Midnight Theology is here for all of it. So until next time, thanks for joining us on Midnight Theology. And remember to leave the Super Bowl snacks alone. Midnight snacks cause heartburn. Who are we kidding? Go ahead. See you next time.